Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. And as you gather back, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is page 960 in the Red Bible. Uh, I'm curious, no one in the first service knew who this was, so I'm curious if any of you do. Do any of you know who John Burkow is? Anyone? Okay. Uh, For the past decade, he just retired, but for the past decade, John Burkow was the Speaker of the House of Commons in the UK. And I don't know if you've ever seen a session of the House of Commons in the UK, but it can get pretty crazy, pretty theatrical, pretty chaotic. A lot of people speaking and and chirping and hooting and hollering and talking over one another. And one of John's main roles was um, was to make sure everything was done in a good way. And so he was known basically for his catchphrase, which was, order. And so people get crazy, be order, order. So evidently in 10 years of his, of his vocation doing this, he said order uh, at least 14,000 times uh, to bring things back into order within uh, their parliament. And so he also did it in some pretty creative ways. Like he would, he would, he would, he would uh, call out lawmakers for chirping or chuttering from a sedentary position, which means they were talking while sitting down, which was not allowed. Um, in one case, he accused one member of fiddling ostentatiously with an electronic device because the guy was playing with his cell phone. Um, but basically his job was to maintain order so that the business of the commons could get accomplished. Order is essential really with any event in any organization. If you ask someone who's been in a military, order is so very important because without order, lies would be lost. If you think about going to a Packer game, which I know we can't do for a while, but if you went to a Packer game, we employ people to keep order there. And without them, it would be utter chaos. I mean, imagine what a football game would be like if there were no referees to keep the order. I mean, how chaotic with that. It would be, it would completely destroy the game. Imagine if there weren't ushers to orderly have people sit in their seats and make sure they don't sit in the seats that aren't theirs, or police officers to, 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 to go and to interrupt the fights amongst the fans and things like that. It is so important to have order in events and in organizations. Evidently in the church of Corinth, order was not something that characterized their church service. They were talking over one another, talking at times that they shouldn't be talking. They weren't waiting for each other when having communion. Some were getting fat and happy and others were starving. And so Paul writes this passage basically to say, order, and to call them to have an orderly worship service so that the main thing could happen, which would be the worship of God and the building up of the body of Christ. And so in today's passage, That's what Paul is going to do. He's going to show us how to have an orderly worship service. 
Now, as I mentioned last week, 1 Corinthians 14 is probably one of the most uncomfortable chapters in the whole New Testament, regardless of your church background. And so I'll just remind you that this is God's word and God is good. And so this is God's word for our good. Now, I'm a little pressed on time uh, this morning because we got a lot to cover. And so I'm going to read it as we go. All right. And so I'm not going to read it all up front, but I'll read it as we go and, and, and explain it as we go. So before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, we confess to you that we rebel against order. Uh, We don't like anybody telling us what to do at any time. And we don't like it when people who are put in positions of authority call us into order. And yet without order, the chaos would be overwhelming. And so God, pray that you'd help us see the beauty of order this morning and help us to worship in a way that is orderly, to glorify you and to edify one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, just so you know, I've been fighting a sickness this week. Not that sickness, but I've been fighting sickness and I'm getting over it. So I might cough a little bit or have to stop every now and then. But the passage that we're in today starts in verse 26, if you want to look there. (coughs) Paul says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Paul is assuming here in this passage in verse 26 that when we come together for church, We come together with a song to sing, a message to share, a word to encourage another person. And the reason, as he continues, says, let all things be done for the building up. And so we are called to come together on Sunday mornings uh, to build one another up in the church. And Paul says that we should do this in an orderly way. And there are three orderly ways that we're going to look at this morning. The first will be the longest, but the first is orderly speaking. And then we're going to look at orderly authority. And finally, an orderly message, okay? So orderly speaking, authority, and message. First, orderly speaking. Now, I feel like I have to do a lot of explaining in this passage, but, but in the early church, the elements of the worship service are the same as they are today, which is the preaching and teaching of God's word, singing, prayer, the reading of scripture, uh, the sacraments. Those were all in the original worship service in the early church. But sometimes the circumstances, we call it, the ways that they were practiced were different, okay? So some churches had a trained pastor, like, like Ephesus had Timothy, who was, who was uh, exhorted to preach the word of God in season and out of season. And so their church service probably looked a little bit more like ours, in which Timothy would preach the word of God. But when you get to Corinth, they didn't have a trained pastor. They had some traveling evangelists that came through, but they didn't have a trained pastor. And so what they would do is they would take turns exhorting one another. Uh, the Plymouth Brethren Church works a lot like this today. I actually had someone after the service say they grew up in a Plymouth Brethren Church, and it was a great experience for them. Uh, it was a very positive experience, uh, even though some can be very cultish. His was a really good really good church. And the way that it would work is that they would gather around a table, and this is kind of what would happen in Corinth, around the the Lord's table, but then they would say, hey, let's sing this song, and someone would bring an exhortation or a teaching, uh, one of the the elder members of the church, one of the more mature believers. And so this is more the context that Paul is speaking into. I think it's important for us to understand that because it will help us make more sense of this passage. And so as we look at this passage, um, we're going to look and see Paul's I think talking about, and I'll explain more, but, but public speaking, not talking before or after the service, but, but, but teaching in the service, okay? So first, he calls for orderly tongues, all right? Uh, if you remember last week, tongues is a language that sounds like gibberish to everyone else, okay? It even sounds like gibberish to the person who's speaking it. And it is a heavenly language that only God can translate. 
and God can translate it to someone and they will share it with the congregation for their edification. And one of the problems in Corinth, if you remember, is that people were over-fascinated with this gift of speaking in tongues, much like much of America today. And so they would be interrupting one another and speaking over one another, and, and it would go on and on and on with no interpretation. And so you would go to church and you'd hear a whole bunch of speaking in tongues and then go home, I guess, is kind of what it, want, what it was like. So Paul says this in verse 27. He says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Notice here, and this is very important, that speaking in tongues is something that they could control. It wasn't like sneezing or coughing where it's kind of uncontrollable. This was something that they could control. He says, only two to three max. If you're number four, five, and six, don't speak in tongues. Uh, and, and if you want to, wait your turn, okay? So it's something that was very controllable that they were to do in a decent, respectful, and orderly way. Verse 28. He says, but if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. And so if there isn't someone that could put this, this tongue in a language that everyone else could be encouraged by, he says, don't do it. Don't speak in tongues. Just keep it for yourself and be edified. Now, I know many of us don't come from tongue-speaking backgrounds, but I think there are principles that still apply to us today. And that would be to speak in a way that is orderly, and so every church has an order. So we would speak in an orderly way according to how our church does things, but also to speak in a way that is understandable to other people. Uh, it, it, we have to be careful. If you've been around the church for a while, uh, we tend to use tribal language around new people. And so we'll say things like justification or sanctification or confessional or a whole bunch of other Christianese words. And we can use those words, but we have to make sure we define them so that it's understandable to other people. And this is what Paul is calling them to do, to use words that make sense, that people can understand in an orderly way. So first he addresses an orderly speaking, orderly tongues, and then he goes on to orderly prophesy. Again, if you remember from last week, to prophesy is simply an exhortation. It's a word of encouragement or comfort or challenge. Verse 29, he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Again, there's a major difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy was inerrant. It was without error. It was perfect. It was flawless. It was the scriptures. But New Testament prophecy needs to be weighed. It needs to be discerned. There is error when people give exhortations, when I give exhortations. It's not flawless. And so you need to evaluate what is said. Verse 30 says, if a revelation is made, that's a new word, that revelation. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, <coughs> excuse me, let the first be silent. Now, this is a little bit of a tricky uh, verse because it's saying it's okay to interrupt the person prophesying or exhorting if you have a revelation. So the question is, what is a revelation? Well, if you take the context, to me at least, it seems that if someone is speaking or exhorting in a way that is inconsistent with the scriptures, and that is uncovered for you. That's what revelation means. If it's uncovered for you or disclosed to you that what they're saying is not consistent with God's word, then you can gently and graciously stop them. Remember, this is a context of, a, of kind of a, a group meeting. And it says you can do that and, and challenge them gently and lovingly and point them back to the truth of God's word. Verse 31. <coughs> for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Again, the purpose of exhortation 
is to encourage one another, to build one another up in the truths of God and the wonder of the gospel. And so this is important because when people are not connecting to Jacob's well, either because this isn't the right fit for them or because they're moving, I will, and they, they'll be looking for a church. I'll say, hey, this is what you want to look for in a church. Find a church that teaches the Bible uh, because then you know it will be consistent with God's prophecy, but also one that teaches it as good news and not as bad news because the word of God is supposed to encourage the believers. Even in confronting us with our sin, it points us to the goodness of the gospel and builds us up. And so if God calls you elsewhere, look for a church that teaches the Bible and teaches it as good news. Verse 32, he continues and says, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Literally, they need to judge one another. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. It's interesting because you'd expect Paul to say, God is not a God of confusion, but of order. But peace is a synonym for order. They equate to one another. I mean, if you can think about it, when your home gets disorderly, it's chaos. It's not peaceful. But when it's put back in order, there's a sense of peace. We know we have a God of order simply by looking at creation. If you look at the food cycle system, if you look at the weather system, if you, if you even look at a tree and just the, 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 per, the, the perfect organization of it, of the leaves and the stems and the branches and all of those things, it communicates that we have a God of order and that order brings peace. But chaos brings confusion. And so in the arena of orderly speaking, uh, there are orderly tongues. He says two to three max and make sure there's someone to translate or interpret it. There's prophecy, uh, which he says, make sure you're discerning the truthfulness of that, okay? And now the hot potato, now the hot topic, orderly genders. Uh, Before we dig in, just to let you know, there's two basic main views of the roles of men and women in the church today. One view is egalitarian, which says that men and women can hold the same roles in the church and in the family, that there's no difference or distinction between men's roles and women's roles in the church or in the family. And then there is what's called the complementarian view, which is that men and women have distinct and complementary roles in the church and in the family. So just for the sake of transparency, if you did not know this yet, uh, Jacob Swell believes that the Bible clearly teaches a complementarian view, that, that men and women are equal in value and dignity and talent and giftedness, and yet are called to different roles in the family and in the church. If you need an illustration of this, just think of the Trinity, right? You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are equally divine, equally God, but they have different functions within the Trinity that complement one another. Does that make sense? And in the same way, God has created us in his image to complement one another. And we believe that God has called men to be the spiritual leaders in their household and in the church. Not in a domineering way, but in a way in which they're willing to lay down their life for others as Christ has done for us. And so with that in mind, look how Paul begins this. Verse 33, it's the second half of verse 33 is probably a new paragraph in your Bible. But this is very interesting how Paul starts this. He says, as in all the churches of the saints. In other words, this doesn't simply apply to you Corinthians. This applies to every church at all times. And I think the reason why Paul is communicating that right up front is because he knows what he's about to say, many of the Corinthians will not like. 
and many of us may not like as well. And he goes on and says, as in the churches of all the saints, the woman should keep silent in the church. All right, so breathe, breathe here a little bit. This word here for silence uh, in the original Greek is sigao. And in the Bible, when this word is used, it rarely means speechlessness or not talking at all. For example, just prior to this, in verse 28 and 30, this word sigao is used, and it's used telling people to keep silent after a time of talking and communicating, okay? And so it says, if you've talked, if you've spoken, stay silent. What adds further uh, confusion or clarity, what sheds even more light on this passage is if you back up two chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul in addressing corporate worship says, but every wife who prays or prophesies. And so he speaks as if women would pray or prophesy within a corporate worship service. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, he assumes that's gonna happen. And then we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And in verse 31, he says, you all can prophesy. And so, so do you see the, the tension and the confusion here? So you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is very clear about his view of women's roles in the church. And yet he's also in other chapters said that they will pray and they will prophesy in the church service. Look, so he continues with clarity. Again, let's just start in 33 again. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the church for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says, talking about the Old Testament. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. <coughs> okay, so here again, you have this tension. In some parts of this, assuming that Paul's not um, a doofus, okay? Paul has different things in mind. And in, in one part, he's talking about women praying and prophesying in the corporate worship service. And yet in this, he is very clear that women should remain silent. And so the question is, how do these fit together? And theologians have proposed four major interpretations, and there's probably more, but I'm gonna give you the four that they give, okay? The first is the cultural interpretation, which simply says Paul was speaking into a unique culture, that the women in Corinth were crazy. And so Paul is simply confronting the women saying, listen, you need to be more quiet because you're acting crazy and you're disrupting the service. The problem with this view is, is the scripture that's all around it. Uh, right before it, we read Paul says, as in the case of all the churches, this isn't just Corinth, it's every church for all time. And then right after this passage, he says, listen, if you reject this command, you should not be in a position of authority in the church. You should not be recognized as a teacher in the church if you reject what I'm saying to you about women's roles in the church. And so it's very clear that this is not a cultural interpretation if you look in the verses right before and right after this passage, okay? The second interpretation, I'll call a complete silence interpretation, which is to take these words that we read here and hold them kind of in isolation and try to apply them, okay? And there are many men and women in our church who hold this interpretation, who love Jesus, who are humble, who are trying to submit to the scriptures, who would say, listen, I don't, if it's a woman, there's women who say, I don't feel comfortable saying anything in front of the church because of this passage, okay? Even if that would be to sing or to share a testimony or anything, they would say, I would not feel comfortable doing that. So that's the second interpretation is the complete silence interpretation. The third interpretation is the marriage interpretation. And the marriage interpretation goes like this. It says what Paul is addressing here 
is, is the home life. And he's saying, remember the context. They're around this table. They're giving uh, exhortations. People are allowed, if it's revealed to them, to challenge that exhortation. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, wives, don't challenge your husbands in the midst of this congregation because it will hurt your relationship with one another and it will cause confusion in the church. But wait until you get home. And when you're at home, say, listen, honey, you said this. Can you help me understand this? Because I think God's word says this and challenge him. And then if you're right, encourage him to go back and clarify it. And the reason why people would lean on this marriage interpretation is because in verse 35, it says, let them ask their husband at home, which means there's an assumption that the husband who had prophesied or exhorted would know the answer to her question. So that would be one interpretation, the marriage interpretation. The final interpretation, which I would say is my interpretation, uh, not that I came up with it, but it's the one that I subscribe to, is called the authority interpretation. And it's this view that says that women are to remain silent in a corporate worship service when it comes to the public speaking in an authoritative way, such as the preaching and teaching of God's word. That men are, are put there complementarian way to spiritually nourish the flock both of the church and in the household, and that we are called to go and to minister. The men are called to minister in a complementary way. In support of this, I point to 1 Timothy chapter 2, which comes right before the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in 1 Timothy 2, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so he roots it in God's good created order. And then he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, meaning that it is still applicable in the midst of a fallen world. And so in the church, prophecy is a word that is a broad umbrella, okay? So prophecy could be stuff that happens before the service, after the service, during the fellowship time, it can be words of encouragement, words of exhortation. It can happen in community groups, in Bible studies, over coffee. Prophecy is a very broad umbrella. And we are all called to do it as believers in Christ. But I think what scripture clearly communicates that within the context of a corporate worship service, where there is the preaching and teaching of God's word, that this is in an authoritative way, that this is to be done by those who God has put in place to lead his church and to lead families, which are the men of the church. And so here are the four options, and there's probably more. There's a cultural interpretation, which I would say is unbiblical, which says it only applied to the Corinthian culture. It no longer applies to us today. There's the second view, which is the complete silence interpretation in which women are not allowed on stage at all to talk in any way, shape, or form. There's the marriage interpretation that Paul's primarily addressing marriages. And the fourth is the spiritual authority interpretation that men are called to be the spiritual leaders in the church and in the household. Now, I want to point this out because I think, um, because I think as we look at these options, except for the first one, which I think is clearly unbiblical, I think we can hold our view with some humility. And I think we can confess that there is a little bit of gray in these areas um, because of the way that we understand this. And, and the Bible does not speak to every single instant or leadership position in the church. For example, it never talks about precisely should community group leaders be men and women 
or just men as they shepherd this flock. It doesn't talk about those who serve communion. It doesn't talk about a whole bunch of things. It doesn't give particulars on, on many of the leadership roles in the church. And so there's a temptation if someone is more conservative than us to just label them as sexist. Or if they are more liberal than us, to label them as someone who does not take God's word seriously. You know, there have been women in our church who would lead music, but would not be willing to say anything else in the church because this was their conviction from God's word. And they loved the Lord and they were humble and godly women. I have a friend who, when their family gathers to pray, he will pray and his boys will pray as he's raising them up to be leaders in the household. But the women of the family will not pray. And they love the Lord and they're humble in their expectations. I don't hold either of those views. We also have people in our church who would say, women should be able to do whatever a non-ordained elder should do, can do. And I wouldn't hold that view either. And so for some, I'm extremely liberal. For others, I'm extremely conservative, which means I'm probably somewhere in the right place. But the point is this, is that there are God-fearing, Bible-believing people who apply this passage a little bit differently. And so can we show grace to one another? Can we challenge one another in a loving and gentle spirit to make sure that we are being faithful to God's complementary view of men and women in the church. And I think it's so important that we do this because there are three things I'm pretty certain of when it comes to men and women's roles in the church. And the first is that it is complementarian. It's very clear in scripture. The second is that I don't have it all figured out, the application. And when I get to heaven, God is probably gonna correct a few parts of my theology, which I'm happy to receive. But the third thing is this, is that God's grace covers my own short-sightedness and he covers yours as well. And so as we engage this and seek to faithfully live out this commandment as a church, let us be gracious and merciful to one another. Okay, that's just the first main point. It's the longest main point by far. It needed the most explanation, but it's not the most important main point. Uh, Paul's, so Paul calls us to orderly worship through orderly speaking. Secondly, he called us to orderly worship through orderly authority. Again, Paul is anticipating pushback from the Corinthians church when he's talking about gender roles in the church. And so he almost doubled down here. He says in verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? The answer is no, the word of God did not come from the Corinthians. But do you know who the word of God did come from? The apostle Paul. <laughs> and so he goes on and he says, or are you the only ones it has reached? Again, the answer is no, that they need other churches just like we do to help us understand how to apply God's word. Verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Notice Paul does not say, this is, not, this is my opinion of women's roles in the church. He's saying, listen, what I am saying is the word of God. This is a command from God. This is God's word. And he says, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, no matter how popular a preacher may be, no matter how famous a teacher might be, no matter how godly a leader might be, if they do not recognize Paul's authoritative word here to be God's word, they should not be recognized as a leader in the church. This is for our good, 
Because the problem is in the church today and in our own hearts, if we are honest, we so often want the Bible to bow down to culture or to bow down to our preferences. But Paul is saying, listen, culture is off base. Culture leads to destruction, the things that it's promoting. We must have culture bow down to the word of God because the word of God is perfect and inerrant and it confronts our views. We must never stand in judgment of God's word, but God's word must always stand in judgment of our theology and our lives and our practice, no matter how unpopular it is with the culture around us. <coughs> um, at Thanksgiving, I think I've shared this before, my family, extended family all gets together. There's five of us Jackson kids, and we, are, uh, we love to play games when we get together at Thanksgiving. And we are a very competitive bunch. All of us played sports growing up. And so it can get a little bit heated at time. And, and almost without fail, every Thanksgiving, somebody is accused of cheating. Um, and so they'll say, no, you broke the rules. They'll be like, that's not the rules. These are the rules. And then there'll be a debate about what the rules are. And they're trying to convince one another that they know what the rules are. And then finally, after, you know, 10 minutes of debate, it will occur to them, there's a greater authority than us that we can go to. Let's find the instructions. And so typically the instructions aren't in the box. They get lost. And so we have to look them up online and, <laughs> and they'll read it. And certainly one will go, oh man. And that one will go, yeah. And the one who's right will take and say, hear ye, hear ye. This is the authority. Here are the instructions for this game. And they'll read it with great triumph and great joy because they recognize there's an authority greater than them. And while it confronts one, it encourages the other. Our greater authority is the word of God. We don't get to make up the rules to this game because God knows a lot better than we do. And he tells us this for our good. Verse 39, he says, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. That's to exhort one another in the truth of God. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. This is also God's authoritative word. He says, but all things should be done decently and in order. And so Paul calls for decent and orderly worship through decently speaking, through decent authority, meaning that God's word has authority over all of our theology and faith and practice. Finally, and this is most important, by calling us to an orderly message. Look at verse one of chapter 15 with me. He says, now I would remind you, um, in other words, you've forgotten this. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news. I preached to you when you received which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, that is growing in your salvation. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then here it is. He says, for I delivered you to you as of first importance. Do you see the orderliness here? Of first importance, this word is protos, from which we get the word prototype, okay? But it can also mean not only first in time, but also first in place or first in rank. It is the chief or principal thing. It is of top priority. And what is this gospel good news of first importance? Verse three again, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You know, I don't know if you've heard this, but it's been said, the main thing 
is to keep the main thing the main thing. Have you ever heard that? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing in the church? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do you know who was a master of keeping the main thing the main thing? Jesus was. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the paralytic. Do you remember that story? Four friends bring the paralytic on a, on a rug of some sort and they come to a house where Jesus is teaching and it's so crowded, they can't get in. And so they go up on a roof, they break the roof open and they lower the paralytic right down in front of Jesus. Now, let me ask you, why did they do that? Why do you think they lowered the paralytic right down in front of Jesus? What did they want Jesus to do? They wanted him to heal him, right? They wanted the paralytic to be able to walk again. To not be able to walk would have been really difficult today. It's really even more difficult back then. They wanted him to walk. It's not a bad thing to want. But Jesus knew how to keep the main thing the main thing. And he knew what was of first importance. And so when he looked at the paralytic, he did not say, pick up your mat and go home. Jesus looked at him and he said, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus knew the main thing was to have the forgiveness of sins. And then he said to the paralytic, so that it said, said to the crowd, so that you know that the Son of Man may have authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your mat and go home. And he rose and went home. Here's the thing, friends. If, if, you are, if you're dealing with sickness, with cancer, with a bad back, with a bad knee, pray for healing for there for that. But make sure you keep the main thing, the main thing, the best thing, the forgiveness of sins, which Jesus offers to all who trust in him, who all who trust and believe that he died on the cross for our sins and rose on the third day to give us life in him for all eternity. I don't know if you know this, but here in 1 Corinthians 15 passage, it says, according to the scriptures, which means it was according to the orderly plan of God from beginning, from before the beginning of the world that God would send his son, Jesus, to die for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, to give us life in him. That's the orderliness of God for our salvation. Friends, it is so hard to keep the main thing, the main thing. It is so easy to be distracted, especially in a, in a time of coronavirus and in a time of, of, of racial uh, reconciliation and a time of, uh, of political, uh, a political candidacy going on. It's, it's hard to keep the main thing, the main thing. But let us be encouraged to keep the gospel, the main thing in our church, in our worship service, in our homes, in our schooling, in our workplace, and most importantly, in our hearts. The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me end with this, and I'm going over on time. <coughs> but I've coached my kids in many sports. I've coached many small little children, and I love doing it. And one of the things that happens on some of the teams is that a kid will come to practice or they'll come to the game and they just want to sit on the sidelines. Uh, they don't actually want to practice or they don't want to play in the game. And so I'll have to come alongside of them to encourage them. And usually their parents do too and say, you know, hey, buddy, like this, like you didn't come here to sit on the sidelines. You came to get in the game and to play. And are you going to mess up? Sure you are. That's okay. Like get in there and play and have fun. This is what you're supposed to do. When coronavirus began and the world quarantined, 
Um, a lot of pastors thought, you know, once quarantine is lifted, people are going to rush back into the church seeking community. But what's happened, what I found instead, and I talked about this with two other pastors, is that people have been so used to being on the sidelines, so used to just watching church at home on a TV, kind of like a movie, that they have had trouble re-entering into the game. You see, when we come to church on Sunday morning, we don't come simply as consumers to watch a program, okay? I know that's tempting to do on the, on the computer at home, but when we come, we don't come simply to receive God's grace, but also to be dispensers of God's grace to one another. I wanna start where we finish, or finish where we started, verse 26. He says, when you come together, each one, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Men, women, children, come to church expectantly. Do not come to church thinking you are called to sit on the sidelines. I heard one pastor put it this way. If you are bored to coming church, if you are bored when you come to church, you are doing it wrong because you're not called to come here and passively be bored about what's going on, but you're called to come and actively be dispenser of God's grace to those who are around you. And so we come to do that in an orderly way for the sake of the building up of the body of the Christ and for the worship of our God. Let's pray.